Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark 15, we're going to look at verses 16 through 20 this morning. So I'll read those verses for us. So Mark 15, begin reading at verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great Savior, we are thankful again for the suffering that you endured for your people. Thank you again for your humiliation, how you came in the form of a bondservant, but you also suffered in this world that you became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and all that that suffering and reproach uh, entailed as you made your way to die on behalf of sinners like us. We confess, O God, we are the ones who deserve to be mocked. We are the ones who deserve to be spat on. We are the ones who deserved uh, to be ridiculed because we are wretches. But we're thankful that Christ endured this in our stead and died on behalf of us that the wrath of God might be poured out upon him instead of sinners. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for our King. Thank you for our Lord. And thank you that he is the one who is seated at the right hand of the power and has come with the clouds of heaven. Thank you for this King. And we pray, O oh God, that we would hail him today. We pray that we would honor him today. We pray that we would bow before him today. And we pray, O oh God, if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls. And thank you that you are a God who is mighty to do so. Be with us now by your spirit. Give us illumination to better understand what is going on, for we desperately need it. Help us by your spirit, we pray. May you be glorified in all things. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, it's probably no surprise to any of you that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. And this especially comes to when it comes to interpreting various books that we read, various things that we like to interpret. I like, well, I like guys who tell me exactly what they're saying. I want to know exactly what they mean. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. So that means I hate poetry. And so what I've done is, at the advice of a book I was reading, pastors should read poetry. And so I've started to read a little bit more poetry by going outside of my comfort zone. But again, I'm struggling as I read through it. I'm not very good at seeing the illusions. I'm not very good at seeing the various literary devices that are used the various things to help us understand the meaning behind the poetry. I just need someone to tell me exactly what it says. I struggle to see irony throughout various poems that I have read. And for this reason, sometimes Mark has been hard to figure out. Mark is much less meat and potatoes than Matthew. Matthew just tells us, here's what it says, here's what it is. Mark often leaves things open. And the point, the reason he does that is to draw us in. He wants us to think, he wants us to ponder, he wants us to enter in to what is going on by having us stop and use our minds and think. And while Mark certainly is detailed, he asks lots more questions and sometimes leaves things more open-ended. So we ask the question, why does he include such things? Why does he include such places? Why does he include such uh, portions of scripture in these specific spots? What is it that he wants us to see? 
Well, thankfully, he does tell us, or by way of implication, he's answering the question, who is Jesus? The word Christ only happens twice in the first eight chapters. He wants us to see who our Lord is. And then this last section, as we make our way to that cross, as we make our way to the crucifixion and resurrection, the key repeated word is king. He wants us to see something about our Lord who is king. He wants us to see that the Lord Jesus is the king of the Jews. But he wants us also to see the irony with respect to how he is treated as king. He wants us to see the mocking and suffering that he endures as king. He wants us to see as well that the mocking and suffering that he endures from the perpetrators, they will one day see him seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. There's a lot of irony going on here. There's a lot of irony happening, especially in verses 16 through 20. This is after Jesus has been, the verdict has been rendered. He's going to be killed and to be crucified. The soldiers then have their way with him. The soldiers then have their time of mocking against him. And there's much irony that we see here as we see the depravity of man on display, mocking the one who truly is king. We see how hateful man can be, how wretched man can be, but also in contrast, how righteous Christ is, how much man deserves and what Christ endured for his people. So Mark, I think in these five verses, wants us to see the mocking the king endures but also the irony of the soldier's homage, the irony of the soldier's praise, the irony of the soldier's hailing. And so my points today are quite ironic. We're going to see two headings, all hail the king, verses 16 through 18, and secondly, all bow before the king, verses 19 and 20. So all hail the king, verses 16 through 18, and secondly, we'll see all bow before the king in verses 19 and 20. So let's look at all hail the king, verses 16 and 18. And notice the royal clothing that they give him. But again, it's important to know the context for us before we get into the clothing aspect. The the verdict has already been rendered. Pilate is going to gratify the Jews instead of let this innocent man go free. And so that's what he does in verse 15. He wanting to gratify the crowd, release Barabbas, a notorious killer, a terrorist, a murderer. Remember, Mark wanted us to see who Pilate releases, one who is a wretch, one who is on the highest level of uh, uh, Rome's most wanted list because of all that he had done. He wants to see how vile this man is, how righteous Christ is, and how Christ is the one who takes his place while this killer is released. So the Jews want him to be crucified, and they want Barabbas instead. Pilate goes along with the mob, along with the crowd, and renders the verdict, he shall be crucified. Sends him to way to be flogged, sends him to way to be scourged, and delivers him over to the crucifixion. So again, this is after Jesus has been flogged. So likely is he would not have been able to stand up. The likelihood is he would have not looked very much like a king. Even after all the false accusations against him, some of them would see because of his batteredness, his bruisedness and his bloodiness, that he perhaps was not a king at all. Perhaps he was, did we despised and we despised and rejected him. We esteemed him not because he did not look like a king, did he? He is one who is battered and bloody. He is the one who has been rendered guilty, so to speak, in this trial. That's what the soldiers think. He must be guilty. He must have done this very thing. He must have challenged Caesar. And so what are they going to do? 
They're going to have their way with him. They're going to give him the royal treatment, so to speak. How dare this one challenge the emperor? How dare this one challenge Caesar? Let's give him that royal treatment. And everything we see here is a fulfillment of what Jesus says in Mark 8, 9, and 10. As he predicts the suffering and death that he would die, Jesus our Lord predicts it, and it is fulfilled in great detail. And so, verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. So it's the soldiers. These are the Gentiles that he's been delivered over to. They're staying at the Praetorium or staying perhaps lightly at Herod's palace. Remember, Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He only comes there for the feast to make sure there's no uprising that happens. They need a little bit more muscle for this time. And so it was a tense time for the soldiers. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know perhaps what uprising might occur. They didn't know if they would lose their lives. Well, let's have some fun then with this one who calls himself the king of the Jews. Let's have some fun with this one who challenges Caesar. So they gather the whole of them, perhaps 600 of them possibly, but a large number around this one who calls himself the king of the Jews. And remember Pilate, or Jesus has confessed to Pilate in verse 2. It is as you say. He truly is a king, but it's not in the way that Pilate thinks or not in the way the Jews think. He truly is a king, but he is not a king who is trying to take out the emperor. He's not a king who's engaging in political uh, uh, rebellion. He is a king who's bringing something in greater than even that very thing. But they don't get that. They don't understand that. They hear his confession. They hear what the crowd says. King of the Jews. Let's then give him that treatment. And so notice how they mock him. Verse 17. And they clothed him with purple. Now, it's not as though they actually had this expensive garment. Again, irony is very much in play here. We need to read past the literal word that is there for us. That's hard for us, I think, in our modern context because we don't read a lot of poetry or we don't read a lot of things with metaphor and try to read past what it says. We're just super literal people. Texting doesn't help with that, by the way. We don't stop and reflect. What's the meaning behind this? Or emails. Like We just don't stop and consider and reflect. And so, again, a lot of irony here. And so what they do is they perhaps take something that is like purple, and purple was a sign of royalty. It was the royal, uh, royal color. So again, they're giving him this royal treatment. It resembled that of an expensive garment. And the point is they're mocking him. Hey, here's one as a king. Let's put this robe upon him. Let's clothe him in this thing if he's such royalty. So they give him clothing. They also give him a crown. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Mockery, shame, psychological pain, but also physical pain as well is what it was meant to inflict. Mocking, 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 reviling, 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 challenging, challenging, challenging the king. They twist it and they place it upon his head. They give him garments and they give him a royal crown. They give him a royal treatment that is placed upon his head to inflict pain. And again, this is after his flogging. This is after the beating that he got. This is after that first sort of scourging that he received. And so they give him clothing. They give him a royal, uh, royal garments. 
But then in verse 18, they give him a royal salute and began to salute him. Verse 18, hail the king of the Jews. They're paying homage to him, homage to him. I don't, am I saying that right? Homage, her homage brings, is that how you say it? I'm trying to sound French and be more sophisticated with what I say. But in any case, they're paying tribute to him. They're paying tribute to this one, right? Hail the king, hail this one. And what's interesting is the way they say it is perhaps a parody of the customary greeting to Caesar. It's a caricature of what one would say to the emperor. Hail the king, hail the emperor. Again, they're mocking him. If you think you're the emperor, let's give it to you. Mocking, reviling, bringing uh, a rebuke against the Lord, bringing blasphemy against the Lord. And they say it, all hail the king of the Jews. Again, that key phrase throughout, king of the Jews. Who is Jesus? He's not just a mere man but he is one who is a king. We see he's been a silent king before his accusers, verses one through five, and even before, before the Sanhedrin. We've seen a king who's exchanged for a killer, verses six through 19, and now we see a king who is mocked by the riffraff, who is mocked by soldiers, who is mocked by Gentiles. They all hail this one. And again, Mark doesn't give a lot of commentary. He's just explaining what happens. Again, he wants us to enter in. He wants us to see the irony that is occurring here. All hail the king of the Jews? And the ironic thing is, in 1539, one centurion will salute him. One centurion will say, truly this man was the son of God. They just see one who has been beaten, one who's been given a poor verdict, one who's or given a guilty verdict, one who tries to challenge Caesar, they do not know what they do, do they? Still sinful, still wrong, still vile, but they engage in wickedness against this one. But one day, this or the one does salute him, and one day they all will salute him. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He must first be humiliated before he is exalted. And brethren, we're thankful that he was humiliated for you and I. You and I deserve to be humiliated, don't we? You and I deserve the suffering that he goes through here. You and I deserve the mocking that people give to this king. Jesus is the one who suffers in our stead and on our behalf. And again, it's not wrong to recognize that very idea that Christ, we deserve what Jesus receives here. Calvin says, our filthiness deserves that God should hold it in abhorrence and that all the angels should spit upon us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved to be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproach. Jesus suffered. Jesus endured. And notice we see the totality of that suffering. Jew and Gentile, from the Sanhedrin, spat upon him, and from the Gentiles, all hate. We don't discriminate. The Bible does not discriminate. All have sinned against God. All hate God. But thankfully, God does not discriminate when it comes to salvation. There's neither Jew nor Greek. 
slave nor free, male nor female. But also as the son of man learns obedience, when with respect to the suffering and totality of it, we also see it's not just physical, but psychological. This is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.3. He learned obedience by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He suffered physically. He suffered psychologically. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We couldn't look upon him. We didn't, uh, we didn't think this could be the one who is our savior. He was despised and we did not esteem him. But then we have verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Christ died in the stead of his people. The griefs and shame that we endure, the griefs and shame that we deserve, Christ bears that upon himself. He endures sorrow and grief. Not just physical pain, but also psychological pain as well. And from there, it's not wrong to draw out the fact that sometimes God's people, again, Mark is writing to the church in Rome. They would have been under threat of persecution, would they have not? They would have been under threat of being perhaps thrown in prison or being shamed and mocked. And brethren, for the most part, especially I think in our modern Western world, the more likely type of suffering that we will face and persecution from without is probably psychological, isn't it? Other than physical, not saying it doesn't degenerate into that very thing, but people will mock us. People will ridicule us. People will tear us down. People will engage in all sorts of wickedness. They'll call us names, right? When I was a kid, it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. What happened to that? All our, everybody says one little tiny little thing and everybody gets offended these days. We've lost this battle, have we not? The world, this, uh, the world around us has lost this very battle. People are more depressed. People are more down. What in the world is going on? And sometimes God's people as well. Brethren, we're more likely to face that type at this point in this part of the world. Obviously, there are brethren in other parts of the world who get all of it, who get the full brunt of it who get psychological and physical pain. I'm not saying it's not going to come here. It probably will come here. But at this point, that is probably what it will be. You don't care. You don't love people. You don't do this, that, or the other. You don't care about rights. You don't care about people's, you know, about, about saving people. You don't care about any of that. That is probably what people will face. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but we need to bring that. Names will never, hopefully, ever hurt me. But Unfortunately, they do. Sticks kind of hit and then they heal, but sometimes these things stick for a long time. But our Lord endured it for his people. He was hailed for us. So that's all hail the king. Let's then look secondly at all bow before the king, verses 19 and 20. And again, with precision, the same words that are found in 1034 are found here of all that he endures. And then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. That reed there is probably the one that he was holding in Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't have that, but he's, they probably gave him a reed. Again, mocking him. Hey, he's got his scepter, right? They'll smack him. 
Well, they hit him with that very thing. So there's some irony going on there. They take the scepter and smack him on the head. What they don't realize is that the scepter shall not depart from him, according to Genesis 49. According to uh, Numbers chapter 24, I believe, the scepter shall not depart from him. He is mighty and he is strong. But again, irony here. They strike him. They spit upon him. They bow before him. They mock him. All these words are found in 1034. Especially with the spitting, it's certainly what the Sanhedrin does. But Jew and Gentile together, Jew and Gentile take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And perhaps there's a parody of paying tribute with a kiss, right? So the king comes, you give him a kiss, paying, you know, honor to him. In this case, they're spitting upon him. What they don't realize is that the kings of the earth must kiss the sun, lest he become angry. Psalm 2. Whenever I hear about tyrants in this world, I just love Psalm number 2. So we see that Christ is spat upon for us. But there's also perhaps an allusion to Isaiah 50, verse 6. So you can turn to Isaiah 50. If you've been paying attention the past several weeks, you probably have heard Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 50 come up a lot. They're both two of the four, two out of the four servant songs. But Isaiah 50, verse 6. It's all about the servant's obedience and confidence in the Lord. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That's another thing I think Mark wants us to see is the resolve of the Lord to go and die on behalf of sinners. To go and die, take the the burden upon himself. Remember he says in Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We've gone from the garden to Golgotha, which we'll see next week. We've gone from what he prayed in the garden to the suffering he now endures. Suffering from the Jews, false accusations by the Jews, being exchanged for a killer, being scourged, and now being mocked as well. And he does so with resolve. He knows his purpose. He knows what he must do. It was always plan A, to come and save sinners, to come and bring salvation, to come and die on that cross, to come and give life everlasting. And he does so by suffering and suffering in so many ways, even as he spat upon by Jew and Gentile. And the way that the king conquers sin and death is by obedience. The humiliation must precede his exaltation. The cross must precede the crown. And brethren, thankfully, because if he died on that cross, we shall have the crown of life in him and possess that crown in life of life in him even now. So they struck him. They spit upon him. Notice they bowed the knee and they worship him again. A lot of irony happening here. They bow and worship. Again, it's the typical word for worship. Again, they're pretending, oh, hail this one. Oh, bow before him. He must be the king. And again, the irony is Philippians 2.10. Every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth. Every knee will bow. I couldn't help but have Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in my head as we were prepping this. 
what did he do? He became humiliated, didn't he? He came in the, uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He came in the likeness of men, becoming born of being born of woman or uh, uh, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of what he has done, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And one day, these ones will confess that as well. And they won't do it necessarily in faith, but they will confess it in fear. Because God will make his enemies his footstool, will he not? Christ says that, or David says that about the coming Christ. He will make his enemies his footstool. I pray that people bow in faith and not for their sins. But those who do not confess Christ and believe in him by faith will bow before him. And it will not be a fun thing. But in any case, he's humiliated here. They worshiped him. And then they lead him away to be crucified. The crucifixion of the king, verse 20. When they had mocked him, again, continuing with that thing, they take the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and let him out to crucify him. They give him his own clothes, which will be divided in verse 24. He probably still has the crown upon his head there as he goes to that cross. And we see that it builds to this point, crucifixion. Marcus said it in verse 15, and Marcus said it here in verse 20 going to culminate in the fact that the king is going to hang on that tree the one who is righteous in every way is going to hang and suffer a most painful death for undeserving sinners he was mistreated he was wrongly accused and he was exchanged for a killer and yet they bow before him here the reality is people will bow before him when he comes again Christ really is a righteous sufferer. And I think there is another allusion to another psalm in Psalm 69. You can turn to Psalm 69. I think there perhaps is an allusion, or perhaps a conceptual allusion, I should say. Psalm 69. We sang Psalm 35. There's also language in there about David's prayer, about being falsely accused and the jesting and reproachment that he faces from his enemies. In Psalm 69, it speaks about this one who suffers, the righteous righteous one who suffers. And in verse 19, verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. And this is in the context of an imprecation. What that means is God prays or the psalmist prays that judgment would fall upon his enemies. I know, again, in our modern delicate sensitivities, saying the imprecations are hard for us, praying judgment upon someone. But again, will not Christ make his enemies his footstool? If we're not saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, do we not desire that God's righteousness be seen in this world? I'm not calling for personal vindictiveness. I'm not saying we go out and take revenge. What I'm saying is, shall not the God of the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all things do what is right and good? 
Paul himself calls it imprecation in 2 Timothy chapter 4. May God repay him according to his works. May God repay Alexander according to his works. Again, that's hard for us. But God will make his enemies his footstool. And there's that imprecation that is there. And he goes on to say, the psalmist in Psalm 69, 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. We despite, we esteemed him not. His disciples are gone. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, which will be mentioned in Mark 15, 23. The Christ who is righteous in every way suffers. And we see the lips of David on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in many other places as well. But this one suffers righteously, but thankfully he will also be vindicated as the righteous king, will he not? That's what he says in Mark 14, 62. I am, and you will see the son of man coming with the clouds, or sorry, you see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We see how dim-witted humans are. We like to think we're smart. We like to think we're sharp. We like to think we have all things under control. We have no ounce of that, do we? These ones don't realize that what they're doing is fulfilling the promises that Christ said and fulfilling the promises of the psalmist in the past as well. They don't know that God is using this mocking and does it for the good of sinners. Does it for the good of salvation of undeserving people? Edward says, Mark's bitter irony persists. The soldiers, despite their intention, acknowledge in both word and deed, Jesus's true identity. They might be mocking. They might be hailing. They might be giving him the royal treatment. But what they don't realize is that he is a true king. What they don't realize is that what he is doing and what he's enduring is for the salvation of sinners to demonstrate that he is king. That righteous sufferer suffers on behalf of sinners, even at the hands of these soldiers, who ironically confess that he is the king of the Jews. And thankfully, this king, who is Christ, is very gracious, isn't he? In Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And in that context there, at the start of the psalm, it says, why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? The king set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Those who take counsel against the Lord are the ones who are called to kiss the son. Probably not. There is mercy and forgiveness in this king. If you're an unbeliever here today, you have mocked, you have reviled, you have scorned in your own sin. You have sinned against this one who truly is the king, but he forgives. And if you believe upon him, you shall find forgiveness and mercy in this one who suffered righteously for his people. I pray that you would hail the king. I pray that you would bow before the king. And I pray that you would bow before the king now in faith. But a day will come when you will bow before him in great terror. When he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Bow now in faith. Find mercy and forgiveness in this king who suffered for sinners 
who was mocked for sinners, this one who is righteous in every way. Brethren, may we all hail the king and may we all bow before the king. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you again for what Christ endured on behalf of wretched people like us. Thank you that even what man means for evil, you do truly mean for good. And even in the death of our Lord, it was part of your predetermined plan. Yet it was the Jews, it was the Gentiles, it was our sin that held him there. Thank you for such a king as he, who did this on behalf of undeserving people. Such a king who would consider us and bring life everlasting through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we pray, O oh God, that we, your people whom you have saved, would hail him, that we would honor him, that we would glorify him, that we would sing your praises, that we would recognize that what Christ has done for us really deserves everlasting praise, which is very difficult for us to give. We pray, O oh God, that you hear our praises in the beloved, hear our praises because of what Christ has done. And we pray, O oh God, that when others revile us, that we would not revile back that we would understand and know that we will suffer in these ways. And thank you that you prepare our hearts for this. But thank you that what the king endured, he did alone. And he did that we might have life everlasting. We pray that if any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Please show them their need for this king. Please show them that they will bow before this king in fear if they do not believe. But may they bow before him in faith. May they bow before him by looking and finding forgiveness in him rather than being punished for their sins righteously throughout, throughout everlasting to everlasting. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that Christ is King. And thank you that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and has been given the name that is above every other name. And he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. Thank you that he is King. May we worship you now once again, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.